morning. My name's Carl. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, Paul's sermon is going to come from two different passages, uh, Exodus chapter 12 and Luke 22. Uh, if you're in the Blue Bible, Exodus 12 is found on page 53, uh, which I will not read this morning, but I will read the Luke 22 passage, which is on page 881. Uh, so if you'll stand with me, we'll read God's word. Luke 22, starting in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for, in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. You may be seated. Take a few minutes to reflect on God's word. I wonder if you can remember where you were three years ago, almost to the day. I was at a Jersey Mike's, and I got a phone call from my daughter, and she said, hey, are we having church this Sunday? And I was like, I'm pretty sure we are. <laughs> well, I just heard that a couple of churches are canceling their service. I was like, what in the world for? Well, we didn't have church that Sunday. Can you believe that was three years ago? Some of you basketball fans can remember thinking, the tournament's going to be canceled. I mean, the world is coming to an end. <laughs> and I just want to say thank the Lord, but also thank you, because think about what's happened in the last three years. You know, COVID, a lot of racial things in our country, an election. And it's been very easy for churches to fracture during that time. And I'm not saying anything about any other church, but I think one thing that's really helped us is we're really here because of Jesus. I mean, we have opinions. You love the mask, you hate the mask. You love Donald Trump, you hate Donald Trump. I mean, I don't care. This is what I care about. There are other things that are worth your time or attention or your vote. But nothing, nothing's worth your soul except for Jesus. 
And three years ago, we used to come up front for communion. Some of you remember that. There's a lot of new people here, so you, you, we've not done it this way before for you. But we did it this way for 20 years, and then we stopped three years ago because of COVID. And today, I'm thankful to say we're starting it back because I think it's helpful. Yes. I, to me, there's something about standing up and moving and saying, yes, I'm, I'm coming forward. There's something that's better to do it physically rather than sort of individually in your seat. Uh, so I want to just explain what's happening here so I don't have to necessarily do it at the end. The elders will come up. They'll hold these trays that will have the little uh, juice cups in them. I'll have a tray here with the bread. And so you'll just take a square of bread, and then you'll take the juice cup, and you'll eat it and drink it, and then you'll put your cup in the basket on the side. Now, if somehow you getting a piece of bread out of a basket still makes you feel strange, no shame, no judgment, but in the trays are these wonderful little cups. <laughs> um, now, we don't expect you to get it, peel it, eat it, drink it, and throw it in the trash can, you know, right before you're here. So you'll just need to take it back to your seat and do it yourself. That's okay. Nobody's going to look at you and go, they're one of those. <laughs> and because there's all kinds of things. People are around, and there's reasons you might not know about. So I, I just want you to feel completely free with that if that's where you want to be. And if you're a gluten-free person, the little gluten crackers that are so tasty are here on the corner <laughs> for your delight. Uh, but before I do the sermon, let's pray together. Well, we're just grateful just to be here this rainy day, right before spring, that we can just quiet our souls or have you quiet our souls so that we might look at something, stare at you, something eternal, not, not temporary. Would you be with us here now? In Jesus' name, amen. When you read the Bible, you want to read the Bible as one unified story. It's not 66 books sort of crammed into one book. You might think better, it's 66 chapters of one book. And there's different stories and different genres of writing through the 66 books. But from beginning to end, it's telling one grand story. There's not an old story and a new story. There's just one story about how God cares for his people and has come to rescue his people. And the way I think about it is it's like one grand piece of music that might have a lot of different movements in this big piece of, of orchestra music, but usually through this big piece, there's chords that get replayed. And I've, I've used this illustration before. So you think about hearing a chord like this. And you hear it at the beginning. And as you go through the Bible, you hear it again. As you get to the end of the Bible, you hear it again. And there's certain themes like chords that run through the Bible from beginning to end to help you see how it ties all together. So the chord I want to play today that's really being played for us out of Luke 22 is this chord of rescue. And that rescue, our rescue particularly, is going to be a bloody mess. 
And that chord gets played over and over in the Bible. And I just want to point out a few places before we land on Luke 22. The first place we hear this chord is in what chapter, in what book, you know? Genesis 3, that's got to be the answer almost every time. All right, Adam and Eve fall. The consequences of their fall are shame. Such a powerful word, a word everyone here is familiar with, shame. And the shame creates a, I need to hide. I can't allow somebody to really see who I am anymore. So they cover themselves, or they try to cover themselves with these fig leaves. And God finds Adam and Eve, and before he sends them out of the garden, do you remember what God does? It, it's a small gesture, but it's loaded with significance. God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothed them, Genesis 3.21. See, see, right from the very beginning, God rejects any notion of self-salvation. Any notion that you can somehow cover yourselves. He's just saying, we're not going to do that going forward. Instead, God plays this very first chord. And the very first chord tells you something about rescue. And it tells you that his rescue for us is going to be costly. It's not going to be costly to us. It's going to be costly to someone else. So he skins, he kills and skins an animal. And he hangs these skins on Adam and Eve as a way of saying, you can't cover yourself, I'm going to cover you, but it's going to cost. It is going to cost. Not costing you. It's going to cost some, somebody outside of you to be covered. A small gesture, but you can hear this chord, and it'll get played all through the Bible Scholar Arthur Pink says this, this was the first gospel sermon. Think about this, Genesis 3.21. This is the first gospel sermon preached by God himself, not in words, but in symbol and action. It was a blessed illustration of substitution, the innocent dying in place of the guilty. You hear that chord here in Genesis 3.21? Another significant time we hear this chord and there are many times it gets played. You move forward to Exodus and you go, hey, I've heard this chord before. I heard it back in Genesis 3, and now I'm hearing it again in Exodus, in the Passover. The Hebrew people are enslaved by the Egyptians, and God comes and he says he's going to rescue them. And I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 6, two verses here, 6 and 7. Say therefore to the people, this is Moses speaking on behalf of the Lord, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery. I'm going to rescue you. I will redeem, big word, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And I'm the one who brought you out from under the slavery, the burdens of the Egyptians. Yet God doesn't simply set his people free in Exodus chapter 6, verse 8. They're not actually completely free till Exodus 14. 
in between Exodus chapter 6 and Exodus chapter 14, you're familiar with it, the ten plagues. Why? Why doesn't God just come to say, I'm going to rescue you, and then just say, hey, Moses, open the Red Sea, let's leave. I mean, why do we need the ten plagues in between? Seems like it's not necessary, unless you're God, and you have other things in mind that you want to make sure happen in this time. And there's two particular reasons for these ten plagues that God sends on Egypt and really on the whole country. First reason, God needed to display to Pharaoh and to everyone else who the true God was and who's really worthy of our worship. Each of the ten plagues, you may or may not know this, each of the ten plagues corresponds directly to a God in the Egyptian pantheon. Does that make sense? So when we've got the blood of the Nile, it directly corresponds to a God that the Egyptians are worshiping. They're not just sort of random things. Nile, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the death of the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally the death of the firstborn. They're all pointing to Egypt saying, none of these things are God's. Only I am the Lord your God. So the Nile turning into blood was an act of dethroning the Egyptian god named Happy, H-A-P-I. The ninth plague was darkness, a response to one of the most powerful gods in, in Egypt, the god Ra, R-A. And he was the sun god. And Pharaoh was thought of as the sun, S-O-N, of the S-U-N God. This, are you making sense? So he, he's, the, he's the firstborn from this powerful God. And what's the tenth plague? The plague of the firstborn. To even say, Pharaoh, you're not God. There, there are no real gods over here in Egypt. There's only one real God. And God's got to display that to the Egyptians over and over and over again. The second reason he needs the plagues is because he actually has to pry the hands of the Hebrew people off of the Egyptians' gods as well. The, the people guilty of serving the Egyptian gods were not just the Egyptians. Can you imagine living someplace for 400 years, being completely consumed by a culture that's unfamiliar to you, but after 400 years, can you imagine yourself sort of taking it on little by little? Could you imagine living in a culture where just little by little you take on the habits of the culture? Does that sound familiar? You don't really notice it, and of course you're not doing all the bad things, so you can judge the culture, but just little by little, little idols sort of seep into your life. And, and now they have their hands wrapped around you. And so God isn't just displaying to the Egyptians, he's just displaying to the Hebrews, hey, those aren't gods either. And we know for sure this happened, or this was necessary, by Exodus 32. You remember this passage. Moses had gone up on the mountain, been a long time. And when the people saw that Moses delayed, had come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron, Aaron, the right-hand man of Moses who had seen and participated in all these miraculous plagues, Aaron said, well, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that they were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a grating tool, and made a golden calf. The golden calf is one of the gods, A-P-I-S, of the Egyptian pantheon. He didn't just make a calf, he made a god that they used to worship. A very powerful god. And then they said, these are our gods. These brought us out, out of the land of Israel, out of Egypt. Can you imagine that? So they're standing in front of this Egyptian god, Apis, and they're bowing down before it. See, their hearts are attached to this. Interestingly enough, just in a cultural note, Beyonce. Now, if you're my age, you're like, Beyonce, I don't know, is that a new ball for kids or something? But if you're younger, you know who Beyonce is. And she dressed up like this Egyptian god recently, one of her videos. See, the world's always slowly trying to grab your heart through the culture, through things that you don't notice, but this seeps in. Suddenly you find yourself worshiping false gods. So Moses had to visually display the defeat both to Pharaoh and to the Hebrews. And finally, we have the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Just to make sure everybody knows that Pharaoh is not the son of God. So let's just look at this in Exodus chapter 12, which was the passage we wanted you to turn to. And I want to read several verses here. And this is the chord that's being struck over and over. Chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old. You can take him from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep him to the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. Then take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost of the lintel of the houses in which you will eat the lamb. And you'll eat the flesh that night, roasted on a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Then over to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both male and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when you are in the land of Egypt. You, you see, the judgment's coming on everyone. It's not just coming on Egypt. Everyone is guilty in Egypt, including the Hebrews. So if you want to be rescued from death, you have to have the blood of the Lamb so death passes over. See, death is going to be a, a bloody rescue. There's a great book called Leaving Egypt by Chuck DeGroat, and he writes this. 
A Passover identity acknowledges that life is a bloody mess. And it overwhelms our feeble attempts for self-salvation. That's why God told Israel to remember the Exodus and the Passover each year. It was a tangible way of recalling the pain of slavery, the graciousness and the bloodiness of God's rescue. So here we have two places. I could mention 20 more, but we're going to fast forward now 1,500 years, and we're going to hear this same chord again. It's, it's so familiar, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, that somehow my rescue or God's people's rescue is going to cost something to someone else, even though it may be gracious and free to me. We fast forward 1,500 years to Luke 22, and we hear this chord where Jesus and his disciples are gathered in this upper room. They're sharing the 1,500th Passover meal. Imagine that. So this is something that's been done every year for 1,500 years, all the way back from Exodus 14. And you can see in Luke 2 how he writes it. It's just kind of an interesting little note, how he's narrowing down the focus to this very moment. Look with me in 22, verse 1. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which it's called the Passover. The time of year is drawing to the Passover. Verse 7, then came the day of the unleavened bread. Okay, we're not, it's, just, it's not just a season, it's the day, verse 14, and when the hour came, you see how the writer is saying, we're, we're, we're all targeting this very moment. And the bloody sacrifice, which began in Genesis 3 and accelerates in Exodus 14, is all designed to bring us to this upper room. 1,500 years later, Jesus is around the table and he is assigning everything and all the signs of the Old Testament to himself because the Bible's one unified story from beginning to end. And it's all about Jesus. Jesus takes the symbols of the Passover and applies them to himself, signaling to the disciples, this is the end of something, guys. This is the end of your slavery to sin. And this is the end of death itself. The true exodus is going to begin with my death. Hebrews, that's why in Hebrews 9.22 it says, Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. So we cannot save ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. And we have to understand this chord that our rescue is going to be costly to somebody else. So let's just be familiar, uh, familiarize ourselves with this very familiar passage. Jesus takes the bread. The, the bread is called the bread of, the, of, of affliction. It's the Passover meal, and he takes it. And in a typical Passover meal, the person who would take the bread would say, this is the bread of affliction of our ancestors who ate it in the land of Egypt. This is the bread of our affliction. And he takes the bread, and he doesn't say that. What does he say? This is my... My body, I'm going to take the affliction that you deserve. See, he's taking all these very rich, powerful symbols and saying, this is, this is the bread of slavery and affliction. You remember? I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it in my body. 
Then he takes the cup. There's four cups in a Passover meal. He takes the third cup. It's called the cup of redemption. And you would say it when you take the cup, Exodus 6, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. This is the blood, the cup of redemption. Re- redeeming something means you, you're, de- you're delivered. There's a deliverance by a price. You think, I'm, I'm turning something over to get something back. If you want to redeem points on your credit card, if you want to redeem miles for your airline tickets, you, you give some points over in order to get something back. And Jesus says, I'm going to give myself my blood. And what, I, what do I want back? You. He, he, he wanted you back. In Genesis 3, God's saying, hey, I want you back. But it's going to cost. In Exodus 6, he's saying, I'm going to have you back, but it, it's going to cost. And here in Luke 22, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your affliction. I'm going to give my blood to redeem you back it's such a beautiful picture adam and eve couldn't pay their price the egyptians or the hebrews in egypt couldn't extract themselves from slavery this moment is what all history has been pointing to i'm going to turn myself over in exchange for you if you trust in me there's a way back there's a way home During the Last Supper, Jesus doesn't refer to the lamb. You notice that? He's got the cup. He's got the bread. No lamb. Why? He's the lamb. John the Baptist. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the lamb. Finally, notice in verse 19. Do this in remembrance of me. Why why this? Well, he's setting a new pattern. You know, this has been a 1,500-year-old pattern. And he's saying, this is something new. I want you to remember it and do it when you get together. But one reason he's saying it is for the pattern. Another reason is because, I hate to say this for myself and you, we're forgetful. And just by habit, you just forget. But a lot of times what happens, the forgetting is, you know what? I think I can save myself. That's part of the forgetting. Or, you know what? I think something else or someone else can save me. And you come back month after month to say, okay, I've got to remember, nothing else can save me. And I can't save myself. So we remember. It may be of some strange comfort to you as it was to me to hear that Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in England in the 1800s, he had this remark on this particular passage, do this in remembrance of me, and I thought I would read it to you. He's a great preacher, and I love how he puts his words together. It seems Christians may forget, Spurgeon says. There would be no need for this exhortation if there were not fearful supposition that our memories might prove treacherous and our remembrance superficial. Don't you like that? Our memories might be treacherous, our our remember it's superficial. 
Then he goes on to say, I have a heart I wish I could wrench from my body and hurl to an infinite distance. Anybody's heart like that? No, no show of hands, please. I have a soul, listen, again, love how he puts this, I have a soul which is a cage of unclean birds, a den of disgusting creatures, places where dragons haunt. This is, this is Charles Spurgeon not talking about the worst person in his congregation. This is Charles Spurgeon talking about his own soul. Yet this is not the sole cause of my forgetting. We forget Christ because there are so many other things around us to attract our attention. But someone may say, well, they ought not to do so because they are around us, but they are nothing compared to Jesus. Oh, dear friend, do you not know the nearness of an object has a very great effect upon its power? Hear that? Oh, the sun is many, many times larger than the moon, but the moon has greater influence upon the tides of the ocean simply because it's nearer. I love how he finishes this. So I find that a little crawling worm of the earth has more effect upon my soul than the glorious Christ in heaven. A puff of fame, a shout of applause, a thriving business, my house, my home, a like on my Instagram. I mean, no, that didn't, that's not part of it. <laughs> Will affect me more than all the glories of the upper world simply because the earth is near and heaven is far away. Let us attend to this word. Do this in remembrance of me, hoping that its solemn sounds may charm away the demons of ingratitude. Isn't that a great quote? Just, just you know how great God is, but you got your phone right here in your pocket. And it just reminds you over and over of the things that you need in your house or in your life or how your body should look or whatever. And because of its nearness, even though it's completely superficial, it has this massive power. And the glories of Christ seem like the sun. I mean, I see him, but so far away. But the gravitational effect on our soul is by things that are near Friends, do not think things that are near aren't having a big effect on your soul just because you know who Jesus is. One final chord, then we'll get to communion. This is a chord that doesn't stop in Luke 22. It goes all the, re all the way to Revelation 5. It's a chord that when we get to heaven, we're going to hear the chord and we're going to say, I've heard that chord. I heard it in Genesis 3, I heard it in Exodus 14, I heard it in Luke 22, and I'm hearing it again. Revelation 5, I saw a lamb standing. As though it had been slain. The elders fell down before the lamb, they sang a new song, singing, worthy is the lamb, for you were slain, by your blood you redeemed people from God, for God, from every tribe and tongue and nation. And then I looked and heard around the throne thousands and thousands of angels and creatures saying aloud, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and might, honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. And everyone said, amen. So as we are going to make our way up here, 
we're going to first just remember that Jesus didn't just hold out the, the cup of his blood just to die on behalf of the way God had arranged it, but he had you in mind. I'm going to exchange myself for you. I'm going to take your affliction. Everything, Paul, that you really deserve, I'm going to take it on myself. Why? I want you. And as you make your way up, maybe even as you're sitting and you're looking at other people and praying for them, just... How do you need to remember today that God really substituted himself for you? That God really loves you? He's, he has you in mind. Or maybe there's a near object that has too much influence on my soul. I need, I need to shift my focus towards the Lord. I'm going to ask the elders and the deacons to come here. And as they do, let's pray. Lord, as we come forward and remember, may just the bodily movement to say we're, we're, we're saying again, yes, yes to you. Yes, I need to remember. Yes, I need to move away from other gods that are attractive. Yes to your yes to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.